Hi, welcome to season three of the Pictures Out There podcast series. This is chat number 19. Today we hear more wonderful stories from Lee's childhood and the communities where he grew up. And now, here's Dave and Lee. Well, thank you for that very kind introduction, Candy. This is Dave. And this is Lee. And we want to welcome our present day audience. And as always, our audiences in years, decades, and centuries from now, our future AI audience, Mm. I guess also our present day AI audience, right? Absolutely. They're they're listening. Yes, they are. And our future alien audience. We know there's going to be aliens listening to this and our universal audience. So glad to have all of you listening. And thanks again for joining us. So we always start with a question or two. What Mm -hmm. are your ideals and what are your pictures? Mm -hmm. So always good pause for reflection. We have a treat today. I think it was in our first season, Lee, when you had the opportunity to share a couple of your wonderful stories. Yes, with and I, us. I appreciated that opportunity. We'll yeah. do the same today. We, and as a consequence, our listenership will decline by. <laughs> 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 well, we were rewarded by your stories, and our listeners love them. And we've got a couple more today. And we're going to set this up a little bit. Uh, We have uh, in these childhood stories, we're going to ask you, our listeners, to do a couple of things. First of all, just enjoy these stories. Just immerse yourself in them. They're wonderful. And then secondly, if you can kind of have a little bit of a dual track going on Mm -hmm. while you're listening to them, Mm -hmm. and certainly as you reflect on them afterwards, we want you to think about the notion of how we share our perspectives and our stories with other people, stories from our past, stories that are going on now. And we've always talked about how powerful that is. Yes, absolutely. When we do that. And there's so much gain when we do take the opportunity to share our perspectives and our stories. Absolutely. But there's more. Wait. There in these stories is incredible insight into some of the other concepts, particularly life tools we've talked about. So we want you, if you can, to also just be thinking a little bit about what we call our community of caring. Mm -hmm. And we'll go ahead and have a little teaser here. Within these stories, you will get a sense of Lee's community. Absolutely. That you had during your childhood. But it's, it's kind of three parts of that community. You'll hear about Lee's friends. You'll hear about Lee's family. Mm-hmm. You'll hear about the town. The townspeople. Yeah. 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 And so just think about the community of caring, the import of that, and the influence that it ends up having on us, and how that community evolves over time. We also will have the opportunity to think about widening and narrowing. You know, as we learn, as we grow, as we make choices to expand our world, that happens through both people that we come into contact with and the widening they do for us of Mm -hmm. our world Mm -hmm. and also experiences Mm -hmm. that we have. And that's how our world widens as well. And one of the things as I was re-listening to Lee's story, rereading them, that really occurred to me is the concept life tools of moderate to extreme where we will talk about that lots of times an opinion doesn't change, something doesn't change, but the degree of extremism or moderation to that thing changes and the fact that that changes is an immense thing. It is. It turns things upside down sometimes, even though kind of the thing hadn't changed. And particularly as we th- think about the, the level of fear that we may have or apprehension mm-hmm. about something or about a situation, if circumstances cause that fear or apprehension to go from extreme 
to moderation, it can completely change the choices we make. Absolutely. About what we do yes. and the courage we have. So how these perspectives translate into opinions we form and the actions we take in the story of our lives makes a huge amount of difference. And it's why it's so important for us to share our stories and share our perspectives with other people. So now, without further ado, let's just sit back and enjoy Lee reading the first story, Cecil and Sally. Thank you, Dave. Cecil and Sally. We heard it before we saw it. A sharp yelp, screeching brakes, and the loud scratch of tires throwing up gravel. As the four of us boys turned toward the ugly eruption of noise, we all went white in a heartbeat. Sally the dog lay mangled in the road as the driver of the sand truck that had just hit her clambered out of the cab. I couldn't miss her, he said. She just popped out of the bushes. Sally was dead, killed instantly by the truck's heavy dual tires. Do you know whose dog this is? The driver asked us. Cecil's, I whispered. Who? asked the driver. Well, she's Cecil's dog, I said, this time loud enough to be heard. Well, where is he? asked the driver. I got to get back on the road. He lives that way, and I pointed vaguely to the north. Well, I'm going to lay the dog over here, but I got to get back on the road, the driver said. He took Sally's hind legs and, as gently as was possible, pulled her into the ditch. Maybe you boys can tell him where she is. Tell him she jumped out in front of me, and I didn't mean to hit her. He climbed back aboard the idling truck and pulled away, leaving us with a dead Sally, guts full of fear, and a horrible duty. The grit and dust churned up by the truck filtered around us, and we turned our noses and throats away from the dirt cloud. Well, he should tell Cecil, Ross said. He's the one that killed her. Yeah, said Donnie. What are we, how are we supposed to do that? We all kept staring at Sally. We got to do it, I said. He needs to know. And I took off walking in the direction of Cecil's ramshackle house. Cecil was our town's only black man. He was old, creaky old. His hair had been white for years, and his face was deeply pockmarked and lined. Most days, he walked all over town with his dog Sally, going nowhere, barely lifting his feet and stopping frequently to rest. He wore gray trousers and a deep violet vest every day in all weather. He was the town's mascot, and I was not like most of the other kids in town who steered clear of him. I liked him. He had been nice to me when my mom and I would stop on a sidewalk to chat with him. There was a look in his eyes that reached me, and he had a soft laugh of wisdom and pain. So it was me who took off walking to tell Cecil the wrenching news. Where are you going? asked Larry. What are you going to tell him? What happened? I said. I broke into a trot, and about a half block down the road, I looked over my shoulder to see the other guys ambling, slowly following. It was mid-morning of a humid summer day, and the sun beat down on my tow head as I made my way to Cecil's. His rickety house leaned to the left on its stone foundation, and its front porch sagged sadly. Its relation to the three steps leading up to it had deteriorated so that there were three inches from the left side of the top step to the porch and probably nine inches from the right side. I huffed to a stop in front of his house and I looked in the open front door. 
I could see Cecil sitting in a battered kitchen chair near the front window, getting what little air there was. I stood stock still, thinking about what I was going to tell him, but he noticed me and rose ever so slowly to his feet. No turning back. I walked up the canted steps and onto his porch. His frail figure made its painful way to the door. It makes a really hot feeling on your neck when the high Kansas sun beats down and you have to tell about a dead dog. Hello, Mr. Cecil, I said pretty loudly because I knew he didn't hear well. What are you doing this fine day, he asked me. He didn't seem to be suspicious of my presence from what he had seen of life. A boy on his porch on a sunny day couldn't amount to much. Mr. Cecil, I have a sad thing to say, I stammered. My eyes swam with briny tears. Sally got hit by a car, a, a truck, and she's hurt really bad. She, she's probably not alive anymore. The milky light in his eyes went blink out. He dropped his gaze to his shoes and was silent for a long time. I'm sorry, sir. A sand truck hit her, and she just came out of the bushes next to the road, and the, the driver couldn't even see her. He put her in the ditch. She's back there close to the Herman's house, just a little down from there. Gathering himself, Cecil stepped firmly out onto the porch and placed his hands on my thin shoulders. I trembled. You did a good thing, son, a good thing. You were brave to tell me. A boy like you come and tell an old man this? That was good, yes, sir. You will grow up into a good, strong man, yes, sir. He released my shoulders and turned to pull his front door closed behind him. I will go see to Sally, he said. You go on now. You go on. I ran off to join the other guys, who had stood a half a block away, waiting, paralyzed by the pressing weight of this awful morning. I'm going home, I said when I reached the guys, and no one answered. That afternoon, I rode my bike to where the accident had happened. Sally's body was gone. There was a thin smear of blood in the gravel, but that was the only mark left on this forever ruined part of town. Then I turned my bike around and I pedaled to Cecil's. As I approached his house, I could see him in his side yard, leaning on a shovel handle. A little sod lay overturned at his feet, and there was a white sheet wrapped tightly around a form. Cecil tossed the shovel aside to remove his violet vest. He wiped his brow with his shirt sleeve. And as he sighed with the heat and strain and the new companionlessness of this day, I leaned my bike against his porch and I went to him. Okay, Lee, thank you so much for that amazing story. Uh, amazing in so many ways. Um, looking back now, what, what does this story mean to you now? Um, so many things. Um, what immediately comes to mind is that I found more courage that day than I thought I was capable of ever demonstrating. I summoned that up. And that relates to your comment previously, Dave, about how events and experiences can moderate our reaction to things. Because being in abject fear when the event occurred over the minutes, over the following hours of that day, I moderated my fear so that I could get toward a place of compassion. So it went from fear and why did this happen to me? Why did I have to observe this horrible event? 
in a matter of hours, I put those feelings aside and thought I have to do for someone who's in more pain than I am. Yeah. The uh, insights that you may have about the communities in your life and the roles they played. So through the course of your story, you were talking about your friends, their reactions, and obviously your, your closeness with them. And you also talk about your mother. Yes. You refer to her in this and her uh, talking with Cecil. Yes. And the comfort that that then gave you in that relationship with Cecil. Yes. And then you talk about the town. Yeah. And just the, the sense uh, that you have, I'm paraphrasing your words, but how, you know, that part of the street or the town was forever ruined yeah. or whatever because of the memory and yes, just thoughts about the interaction of those three communities that were your community. Yeah. Thank you. So let's begin with the townspeople. And you may have heard what I regard as a problematic term in the original description of Cecil as the town's mascot. And there's a bit of racism in that, right? Mm -hmm. But as a child, not fully knowing what the situation was, I thought that he was loved by the town folk. And I think he was, and I think he was cared for by the town folk, but there was that arm's length remove mm -hmm. of, you're the only black person in this community, stay in your lane, find your place. I don't think any harm was ever done to him in any physical way, but clearly there was psychological pain mm -hmm. because there were no people like him in the community. I have no idea about his family or if he had f friends elsewhere. I, I don't know. But because of my mother's modeling and my father's as well, uh, I was taught through words and actions that he was deserving of the same respect and courtesy as anyone else in the town. And my mother would occasionally kind of go out of our way as we walked about the town shopping or whatever to say, well, let's go talk to Cecil. He's sitting over there on the park bench. Let's go say hi to him. And that's generally all it was. Hello, Cecil, how are you today? But in that was, we welcome you into this world. Fully humanizing. Fully humanizing. I was taught from a young age that he was deserving of the same respect and dignity and grace as anyone else. The, the moment where he, hearing your news, there's all sorts of goosebump moments for me in listening to your story. The moment where he puts his hands on your shoulders and says you're going to be paraphrasing you're going to be a good man or a great man it was the first time anybody in my life had communicated that to me in those words oh my goodness and i don't mean to sound like hey my parents never gave me that kind of affirmation they did they th i knew they thought that i would grow up to be a good person but that was extra powerful coming from the the lowest if you will yeah in the community the lowest who in the community who was hearing what had to be the saddest possible news that he could hear and he extricated himself from all of that to give you a moment he he gave me a wonderful gift of kindness in that moment of pain yeah. that he was experiencing yeah yeah as for my friends this is an interesting event in that the five or six guys who were my best friends growing up, I was not a leader in any form or fashion of that group. I was a follower. Mm. 
And I can't really tell you why, but in this moment, I chose to choose a leadership role. Hmm. And they respected it, and I think they were somewhat in awe of it. And I think their hanging back, if you will, was for two dynamics, fear. But the other one was, man, he's going to do something that none of us are capable of doing. Let's observe this. Did you all talk about it afterwards? Did yeah. you recall, or just it, it got absorbed? It just kind of got absorbed. We talked about in, in weeks or months later how awful it was, how sad it was. Yeah. And a couple of my friends in time would say, that was really brave of you and great of you to go communicate that. Yeah. And that was about it. But There was no profound reflection as a you, group. You modeled that, and there's no telling the ripples yeah. that you created from how you handled that one event. I, I, I would imagine there are life-changing ripples that happen with other people because of what you did. Yeah. That's I, I, I hope so. Talk about this a little bit as a widening experience in your life. So you have this whole experience happens. You, you have your sense of people broadened, Yes, I imagine. And yes. then you have your own sense of what you are capable of broadened yeah so let's return to Cecil placing his hands on my shoulders and telling me that I would be a good strong man I don't know that it happened in that moment but the message I received was you have a life outside this small town right you're gonna grow up you're going to leave here and you're gonna carry goodness with you Mm -hmm. and I think Perhaps that was the first time or one of the few times I really kind of understood, yeah, I'm going to go out into the world, so to speak, beyond this little world in which I grew up, wonderful as it was, and I need to make my impact. I need to share my ideals. I need to share my perspectives and my stories because that's the gift I have just as we all have. Okay. And I think now with all of that, thank you for sharing all of that. Let's read another one. And again, listeners, I think you guys are really going to enjoy this delightful story, (laughs) wonderful story, and it's called Sam Sam, I I Am. And uh, dear listeners, this is at the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of serious versus comical. Okay, Sam I Am. I can't remember how exactly I came to be Uncle Sam. I don't remember volunteering. I don't even remember agreeing to a proposal. I just got the job, probably because my mom was friends with the local merchant who needed an Uncle Sam for the 4th of July community parade. I do remember very clearly why I got the job, You're tall, I was told. (laughs) That was it. That was the sole requirement. It had nothing to do with a likeness. By the way, how can a 13-year-old boy with thick black glasses and not one emerging whisker on his chin look like Uncle Sam, who I always assumed to be about 65 years old? It had nothing to do with an aptitude for acting. All I could act like was a smartass. It didn't even have to do with willingness because I was, shall we say, mildly opposed to the notion that I would dress up like some poster from the 1940s on a hot day while all of my friends horsed around with firecrackers. And while we're at it, who said Uncle Sam was tall? (laughs) 
Did the federal government publish his height and weight? Just because stilt walkers, sometimes dressed alike Sam in circuses, did not provide confirmatory evidence that he was indeed tall. I think the parade casting director got this all wrong. But Basil, our local grocer and civic leader, needed an Uncle Sam to ride atop his car in the parade, and my mom said, of course Lee will do it. The agreement must have been transacted around June 1st. I know this because for about a month, I had to alternate standing stock still while my mother, the seamstress costume designer, took exacting measurements of my chest, waist, inseams, and shoulders with trying on a coat, pants, and top hat dangerously filled with sewing pins. It seemed that no matter the adjustments my mom would make, the coat's sleeves were never quite long enough, the pants were too loose in the waist, and the top hat canted to the right. The hat's crown was somewhat rounded like a derby should be, not what a well-dressed Uncle Sam would wear. As the 4th of July approached, my friends tried to enlist me in their holiday plans, but I vaguely declined, saying only that I have to do some stuff with my parents. No way in hell I was going to tell them about being Sam. It was going to be bad enough hearing their puerile comments for weeks after the parade. I wasn't about to give them ammunition for weeks leading up to what was to be my very public denouement. When our kitchen wall calendar turned from June to July, with June's photo of a cat in a flower patch giving away to July's photo of exploring fireworks, I began to panic. After four weeks of complaining, I suddenly shifted gears into hyperdrive questioning. Mom, where am I going to be in the parade? The first thing? The last thing? Behind the big tractors? Am I going to throw out candy? What happens if I have to go to the bathroom? Am I supposed to wave at people or act like I'm a statue? My mom was no help in answering these important questions. It'll be fine, was her response to everything I said. (laughs) Then on July 3, even my mom began to question. She called Basil on the phone. Is he going to stand up in the back seat of your car? What? On the hood of the car? Well, how's he going to do that? He'll slide off and you'll run over him. Oh, that was just what I needed. Add the probability of death to my growing list of fears. What is the matter with people? I'm only a kid. I only have about four pubic hairs, and now I'm dead Sam walking. We're standing. Whatever. Oh, I see. That'll work, my mom said. He'll just have to hold on with one hand and wave with the other. Okay. I'll have him at your store at six. Hold on to what? Mom, what is going on? I screeched. It'll be fine. She said, what do I need to hold on to, my shit? (laughs) Lee Charles, you do not talk that way. Stop it. Basil has rigged up a little support stand on the front of his car. You just stand up tall and straight and hold on to the stand and wave. Feeling a little better, I ventured, what if I need to switch hands? It'll be fine, she said, bringing an unsatisfactory conclusion to this terrifying tete-a-tete. 7.15 a.m. July 4, and I jolt up in bed. This may well be my last day on earth. I'm either going to get run over by a parade or die of humiliation. 
I think I might accidentally on purpose fall down in front of a horse club as the parade queues up. Seems like a naturalistic, wholesome way to go. I have nearly 11 hours before I am Sam. Sam I am. Put on my hat and act like a ham. God, I'm sick. My mind won't quit. I spent the better part of the morning trying to convince my mom I had the flu. She wasn't buying it. Perhaps I hurt my own cause by eating three bowls of Fruit Loops. Nervous eating, I argued. It'll be fine, she said. I spent a few hours in the early afternoon shooting off firecrackers with the little boy next door, but my heart wasn't in it. We did put several good burn marks inside a pot bottle, but we couldn't find any spider holes to bomb. Then about four o'clock, my mom called me indoors. I want you to eat something before we get into your outfit, she said. Mom, if you make me eat, I swear I will puke. I swear it. Chicken and noodles, she sang. One of my all-time favorites. I should probably eat, I whimpered. <laughs> Damn, that woman was good. After two bowls of noodles, my mom actually complied when I asked her to hold the chicken. It was time for me to transform into Uncle Sam, the iconic image of American pluck and resourcefulness. In my bedroom, I stepped into the bright red pants. I buttoned the white starched shirt. I pulled on the blue jacket, tied the laces of my one pair of black dress shoes, and I tucked the red and white striped top hat under my arm. I looked into the mirror hanging on my med bedroom closet door. It was me, Lee, who looked in, but it was a gangly consumptive from a Moulin Rouge's 1890s Parisian cabaret who looked back. I looked absolutely nothing like Uncle Sam. I put on a hat thinking it would somehow transform my overall appearance. Nope. Now the consumptive looked like a wee bit of a psychopath to boost. Like a condemned man walking to the gallows, I walked from my bedroom out to the kitchen where mom was preparing a dinner to go for my dad, who we would meet at Basil's store after he got off work. I look like an idiot, I moaned. You look fine, said mom. I literally laid down in the back seat of our car as my mom drove us the 15 blocks to Basil's grocery store. I told my mom... I didn't want to ruin the illusion for anyone who might see us before the parade. She knew I was hiding from possibly being seen by my friends. We arrived at Basil's store. My mom opened the back door of the car and I slunk out. My dad was already there talking with Basil. Why, there's old Uncle Sam, Dad said. Well, there's the star of the show, said Basil. Let's get this over with, I said. Basil had a red 1967 Ford Fairlane. He had decorated it with red, white, and blue paper streamers and had tied empty cans to the rear bumper to generate some parade clatter. On the hood of the car, on the passenger side, was a cleverly conceived little support stand. There was a small rubber mat for me to stand on and a little post about waist high for me to grasp for balance. The whole thing was tethered with strong clothesline wire to the front grill of the car. The line ran around the front fender to the passenger side door handle where it anchored. Hop up there and try it out, Sam, said Basil. I stepped up on the front bumper, then gingerly onto the hood. I positioned my feet on the mat, grabbed the support post with my right hand, and waved meekly to my mom. How does it feel, asked Basil. Okay, I guess, I said. Well, 
will only be going at about five miles per hour. So if you do fall off, I don't think it will hurt you too bad, Basil laughed. <laughs> Great. More talk of falls, disfigurement, and death. Adults are so messed up. Okay, it's time to roll out, Basil said as he got behind the wheel of the Fairlane. We are number two in line, right behind the honor guard carrying the flags. Number two in line. Honor guard. Wait a minute. That sounded pretty great. No one would really be looking at me because they'll be standing at attention for the flag. Yeah. And then Basil said, after the honor guard, the announcer would say, ladies and gentlemen, to honor America, give a big welcome to Uncle Sam. <laughs> an announcer? Since when does the parade have an announcer? This sealed it. I'm dead. Just smile and wave, Basil said. It'll be fine. God damn that phrase. <laughs> we slowly drove away from Basil's store, went around the corner, and took our position in the parade queue. Few people noticed us. They were busy with their own last-minute preparations. I did hear one woman who was dressed like a pioneer say, Oh, that's cute, Uncle Sam. Perspiration ran down my back. My vision blurred a little, and my breathing was shallow. I stood for what seemed like an hour on the hood of that car before I heard the leader of the honor guard yell, Forward March, and the parade officially began. I forced an inhuman smile and began to wave, even though the parade hadn't reached any onlookers yet. I kept whispering to myself, hold on, man, just hold on. I lived in terror of unceremoniously besmirching America's honor by face-planting onto the parade asphalt. I heard a few people clapping to my left, and I threw a wave of my hand in their direction without actually looking in that direction. And from my right, I heard a little girl's voice say, who's that? So I shot a smile that way. I heard a woman say, well, look, honey, it's Uncle Sam. And I tightened my death grip on my support post. For the next few minutes, I was dimly aware of more light applause, more happy voices, and more shouts of, hi, Sam. I was actually going to survive this, I thought. And then, Stuart, <laughs> you look like an idiot. Is that Uncle Sam or did a flag vomit? I bet the girls love that outfit. It was a knot of my friends. They had seen me. And even though I wished with all my wishing might that this whole thing would just go away, I turned to them, smiled, and waved like an automaton. Ha, 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 what a dork. Their voices receded as the fair lane inched along. There were several more rounds of applause and cheery praises as we completed the parade route. The car finally came to a stop. Basil got out and waited for me to get down from my perch, but I was frozen in place. You can come down now, he said quietly. You did a really good job. The people were happy to see you. As I slowly clambered down to the ground and removed my hat, Basil extended his hand to me. Here, take this. You earned it, Sam. He dropped a $5 bill into my shaking hand. I hope I said thank you, but I don't really know if I did. My circuits were fried. I took off my jacket and began to walk slowly in the direction of my house several blocks away. I'd only got about a block when my mom and dad rolled up in our car. Get in, Sam, my dad said. Let's go home and get you out of that get-up. When we got to our house, my friends were already standing in our driveway. I'm screwed, I said from the back seat. 
but I decided to take it like a man, and I threw open the door and hopped out with great energy. Bring it, you jerkwads. I steeled myself. That was so cool, said Larry. You were the best thing in the whole parade, said Don. Man, you look like about 10 feet tall, said Gary. Lynn, that outfit is really realistic. Huh? <laughs> the stress must have damaged my hearing. We are sorry we were razzing you when the parade went by, said Larry. Yeah, said Don. We razzed the whole parade, and Gary high-fived him. Even the Girl Scouts! Of course. I understood. I totally understood. I would have razzed the parade, too, if I hadn't been in it. That's what post-pubescent boys do. But these guys, after everything, were my friends. Come on, man, change your clothes. Let's get down to the fireworks display, said Lynn. Okay, I said, and I turned to my parents for their permission to go. That'll be fine, said my mom. I ran into the house, stripped out of my costume, and pulled on jeans, a t-shirt, and tennis shoes. I looked at the pile of red, white, and blue garments on the floor. You were a good man, Sam, I said with gravity, and I dashed out the door with $5 in my pocket back into the world of just being me. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, before any other questions, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Which, which is the, you have no choice. It's not just that it'll be fine, but it's like you're in this. You're in it. And, and you ain't getting out. You're not getting out. Stop worrying about it. There yeah. are a million reasons to worry, but they'll all be fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's and the, the, the option to instead go... No, you and to be argumentative about it, and to from particularly a parent, just it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Oh wow! Yeah, it's the greatest stonewalling Slam job. Slam the door shut. <laughs> you know. So I've had friends ask me if any of that's fabricated. The truth is no. Basil actually said, "Well, if you fall off, we're only going to be going five miles per hour, so it won't hurt too bad." <laughs> Okay, so I lived in terror for at least a week of how am I going to stand on the front of a car? And and all of our listeners, including me, are trying to visualize this stand yeah, yeah. that impromptu got put on the hood of a car. It worked very well, worked very effectively. I mean, that's that's a pretty damn amazing piece of engineering. It really was. <laughs> it really was. It kept me alive. So, similar questions. Sure. I mean, what does this story mean to you now? Looking back at it. Well, looking back on the remove of um, 50 years uh, or more, um, just, just the sweetness. Yeah. Just the, first of all, a small town community parade. For me, there's nothing better. It's a coming together for, for happy, positive reasons. In this case, the 4th of July to celebrate the country's founding. And truly, what I do dimly remember are, are, are light applause and shouts of yay, Sam, and things of that nature. Just, just kind of wrapped in positive feelings from the townsfolk. What about belief in you? So one of the things that hit me, it actually hit me this time, listening to you read the story in a way that it didn't necessarily hit me hard, but, but the, we have to have somebody do this. Lee. Yeah. Lee can do this. Sole your, requirement height. Your, your mom, well, <laughs> yeah, but 
looking back, don't you think there was probably more of a requirement than that? I think there was. I think I could be trusted not to act out. Yes. I think I could be trusted to wave appropriately, smile appropriately, and to the best of my ability, inhabit the supposed character of Uncle yeah, Sam. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. At the time, you're probably like going, I got picked because of my height. Exactly. You know, but yes. yeah. but uh, they, there they may suspected, have been a little more. They suspected a bit more there. <laughs> yeah. So again, your multiple, excuse me, your multiple communities, you know, the presence of your mom throughout all of this. Yeah. The presence of Basil. Your friends, yes. you know, and their presence in this story. Yes. And then just the reaction of the town, mm-hmm. which you still, it sounds like, vividly remember this reaction like, of the town. Like yesterday. To you. Yep. Like and yesterday. And this, this interplay that you were, you were managing the interplay of these, I'll call them three communities. Yes. That you had. Yes. And, and kind of at the end of it, there's this deal, this pride. You got five bucks in your pocket, but it always seemed to me with this story that you were proud of how you had managed those three communities. Yeah, I felt proud of it. I felt proud that I had discharged my duty well. Yeah. I felt proud that I found the courage to make it through. Yeah. And the last segment of that uh, is such a vivid, vivid memory for me. I remember pulling up in my parents' car to our home and my knot of friends was already there. They'd beaten us there. And I literally had to steal myself and go, go give me your best shot, you jerks. And what did I get from them? That was so cool. No one ever said I wish it had been me, but there was rather a, a respect and a, wow, you were the neatest thing in the whole parade. And it just put me on a cloud. And I love your words at the end, which to me resonate as I have clarity about who I am when I am just being me, mm-hmm. you know. But maybe my sense of what I can do that can still be me, maybe that got nudged out. Yeah. Just outward. A I think it bit. did. Yeah. Outward just a little bit. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I've got my core me that feels like maybe the most me or mm-hmm. that I'm most comfortable with. Mm-hmm. But hmm. One called upon, I can go, yeah, take that and be a bit more of a public figure, if I may use that phrase. Um, get on the stage, if I may use that phrase. And I think this event. As you know, Dave, and probably as we've discussed on previous podcasts, I've been a lifetime public speaker. I love it. I'm the, I'm the converse of afraid of it. I thrive on it. I think at least an element of that is because of this experience. Yeah. Get up on stage. The entire town is going to be looking at you. I'm not making a speech, but I have to inhabit a character. I have to do what's right and accepted and expected and appropriate. And I think that was very formative yeah, and when we talk about the the widening process in the books and in the podcast, widening and narrowing, we talk about widening. We t- tend to talk about widening our skills, widening our knowledge. Yes. And maybe I'm sitting here in this moment going, it's actually more than that. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this so much, but I'm having a moment here where it's like, it is widening who we even think we are. are. And I've always thought of that more as it's something that's already there within us. Mm-hmm. And you have a widening experience like that. And it's like you're, you're tapping into something inside yourself that you didn't even know was there. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it's 
it's an external thing. I don't know. Maybe it's that, or maybe it's this. Oh, I didn't know that I had that in there. Right. And that is me. Yes. That yeah. is a part of it. It's, it's me too. It's it's me too. It's everyone I uh, who I thought I was in addition to this new me. Yeah. Yeah. And I may not even yeah. in the future tap into it that often, but it's there. It's there. And it's me and it's authentic. So listening audience, Dave was tapping his chest over his heart as he was saying much of that. And I remember this physical sensation vividly. My chest expanded. My shoulders went back. That was swelling from pride. But now in the hindsight of 50 years, I think it was also swelling with some probably subconscious realization that, oh, there's a little more to me than I thought an hour ago. And I think for all of us now, having listened to that story, if we have similar things come up in our life and we have some trepidation about it, what we can all be very, very clear on is it'll It'll be be fine. fine. We did not rehearse that line. He and I are looking at each other and going, we're looking at each other and going, it'll be fine. <laughs> Thank you, Barb Stewart, for that, for that jewel. <clears throat> Forever. So as always, we like to close our podcast with optimism, momentum, and gratitude. A huge thank you to Lee for sharing these two amazing stories with us and your thoughts about them. We really appreciate that. And for all of our listeners, uh, there is a gratitude that we should all have for experiences that take our life to a new place. Mm -hmm. And that may be physical or it may be in our imagination or or anything. Mm -hmm. We need to have gratitude and do have gratitude for the people that are with us when we go and when we can go to that new place. And we have immense gratitude for opportunities like this to hear one another's perspectives and the wonderful stories we each have to tell about our lives. That is truly one of the joys of life. Yes. Thank you for the opportunity to share these stories. Uh, And as curious as this may sound, thank you to my parents. Thank you to my family. Thank you to my friends at that time. Thank you to the townspeople of that time and all of that ecosystem that we call the community of caring. In closing, we ask you to reflect on the following. What are your ideals What are your pictures? What are your stories? What are your actions to take? And what is your influence to use? Thank you for joining us. Take care. Thanks for joining us today. As always, feel free to explore more about Pictures Out There at picturesoutthere.com and major social media sites. We hope you have the day of your dreams the day of your pictures.